0: topic for this evening is uh, the holiday of Sukkot. In the Torah, of course, we have a, in the Tanakh, the Torah does mention Sukkot on several occasions. Of course, it's mentioned with all the other holidays, both in uh, Vayikra, which is chapter 23, uh, chapter 23, chapter 23, and we'll get to that. It's very, actually, very strange over there. And it's also mentioned in the list of holidays in Bamidbar, which lists all the days that there are special sacrifices. And there too, that's listed in chapter 28 or 29. Let's read chapter 29. Yes, yeah, chapter 29, um, beginning in the 12th uh, pasuk. And uh, chapter 29, obviously, as you can see for yourselves, it occupies a lot of space. Unlike the other holidays, more, more space is devoted to the holiday of Sukkot than any other holiday. And the reason is that on the holiday of Sukkot, in that chapter, that chapter talks about, the, that chapter and the prior chapter talk about the days where there's a special sac- sacrifice, So the holiday of Sukkot is unique in that respect. The holiday of Sukkot, on the eight days of Sukkot, um, every day has its own sacrifice, its own special sacrifice, and each day is different. Unlike, for example, Pesach, the seven days of Pesach, where every day you bring the same sacrifice. Sukkot, every day is different. So the Torah, in discussing the sacrifices in 29, gives a lot of space to Sukkot. Each day, eight days, seven days, and then the eighth a lot of space. That's a 20 And in chapter 23 of Ayikra, where it talks about the holidays, there too, it would see that Sukkot has more space than any other holiday. That is because, in addition to having special sacrifices on each day, <coughs> Sukkot has more observances than in any holiday. Because on Sukkot, apart from the fact that it's a holiday, you know, work and all that, but the Torah mentions specifically Two observances in relationship to Sukkot, which is the end of chapter 23, in page 263. First of all, it mentions that, in verse number 40, uh, that you want to uh, to take, it says, on the, on the first day, and the total lists uh, several species that you take. Creates hadar kapot anafet zavot Take these species, hadar whatever that is, it's not clear. Our tradition says it's an etrog, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, and rejoice before God seven days. And then it says, basukot shivat yamim, you are to sit in booths at Sukkot for seven days all the Israel, all the citizens they translate shall stay in stay in booths in order so the way it reads it reads that on the holiday of Sukkot there are two observances taking these species what we know in our tradition as the four species and then the second verse the verse after that says to sit in booths for seven days the whole thing is actually curious in general in VaYikra, because when you read the book of VaYikra, you read the list of the holidays. It's very odd, whatever interpretation we give it. Because in verse number 37, it mentions Sukkot in verse beginning in verse 33, 34. In the seventh month, in the fifteenth day, seven-day festival to God. First day in the first day is a uh, first day, you're not allowed to do any work. Sacrifices for seven days. On the eighth day, it's a holy day. Bring a sacrifice. Don't do any work. The next verse in verse thirty-seven is Elam Hashem. These are the festivals. It's a wrap-up verse. It started with Shabbos, Pesach, and all the holidays. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shavuot. Elam Moadei Hashem these are the festivals, it sounds like it's over. What hours would you read it? We have now given you the list of festivals, now we move on to some other topic. But what's very z- strange in verse three is ah, oh, one detail we didn't mention before, that on this last festival, you do two things. You take these species and you sit in Sukkot. So no matter whatever, it took, whatever answer we're gonna give over here, it is it is odd that after we seem to have completed the whole list of festivals, Torah goes back to the last holiday and says, On this day, you are to sit in booths, etc. So maybe we'll try to address that in the course of just about what point the, the problems are as important as the answers. Because the problems will generate many answers. I have my stuff, for better or worse. That's one Approach. there's many approaches the just another point which everybody should be familiar with question which is this the way our tradition understands these verses at the end that the Torah is commanding us two different things two mitzvahs one mitzvah we call the minin, to take these species what does it take mean Means to pick them up we also wave them around, or well, they're not new in. Okay, that's one. And then there's another mitzvah to sit inside a sukkah for seven days. That's the way we understand the verse. It, as if the Torah says, I mean, complete the list of the holidays, postscript, by the way. There are two other mitzvahs we didn't mention before. For whatever reason, we mention them now. It's exceedingly strange. but, but in <clears throat> However, the Karaites did not understand it this way. Karaites had a different understanding of these verses. They understood that you shall take for yourself these species, the Arba Minim, or whatever, as creates Hadar, whatever that is, and with this you shall, in fact, perform... There's one mitzvah. It's to build the sukkah. But what do you build it from? So the Torah tells you what the building materials of the sukkah are. They're these various species Creates hada either as a specific species or make sure that it's beautiful or whatever. We have rejected that. The tradition rejects it. I had two points to make about the. Now, why do the Karaites say this? Well, what is their evidence that they are correct? I just maintain my own. God tells me that, that they're actually not correct. That's, that could be wrong. My, my intuition, for better or worse, is that in the Peshat it's not. It sound the way to me. But in any event what they based it on is a verse that we saw last week in the book of Nehemiah. in Nehemiah, it says that the people got together on the seventh month on the first day they were all upset and uh, and they were crying and mourning and they Ezra says to them you shouldn't cry and mourn because it's a festive day it's a happy day go out and rejoice and send gifts to you those who don't have and Hashem he says Your strength lies in God's rejoicing. Well, God God is happy when you are rejoicing. The next verse, that's the Let's get this to chapter 8 of the Yeah, it's page 1874. Then they come back on the second day. You see, they have the seventh month on the second day. And they're reading the Torah. And lo and behold, what do they discover? on the bottom of page 1,874 So they discover lo and behold that there's a mitzvah to sit in the sukkah in the seventh month. But right. So therefore it's a they never heard of this mitzvah it says v'asher yashmiyu they then m proclaim they made a public pronouncement in Jerusalem and all the cities, and they said the following go out to the mountains, Hadas, They told the people, Go out to the mountains and gather wood. What wood should they gather? And they mentioned the following woods. Awe Zayat. That's uh, olives, right? Olive trees. Ech Shemin. It's not clear. They like pine trees. Not clear. Awe Hadas. It's myrtles. Hadasim. Tamarim. What is Tamarim? Palm tree. Lulav, right? Lulav is a palm. And anav Ech right? So Eight is our understanding. Eight is the is, is that's the expression in the in the Chumash, right? And what? It doesn't have Arvei Nachal. Yes, correct. But my, my point is the list sounds awfully similar to the one in the Torah. So the Karaites said, obviously, the gathering of these woods, here in the it's clear, they're gathering the wood to build the sukkah. So the Karaites said, by parallel, probably it's the same thing in the chumash. On the go in the first day and gather all the woods. The first is before the first day, by the first day, gather these woods in order to build your sukkah. What, what is the sukkah made of? It's made of a variety of these kinds of of uh, of trees, of, of vegetation, of growth. So the Karaites denied that there's a, a separate mitzvah to take the darod minim. They said the darod minim well for this one mitzvah to sit in the sukkah. And if one wants to say this, I didn't check this out, but no doubt someone says it. I have no doubt, that what do you mean? Did, what do you mean they didn't find this in the Torah? Doesn't it say in the Torah the holiday of Sukkot, to which one could give a very simple answer? It says the holiday of Sukkot in the first in the list of the festivals, but the, and these are the festivals of God. Afterwards, it says it says Ah. However, on this fifteenth day. There's a mitzvah to take the minim and to build the sukkah, to sit in the sukkah. That they didn't have. Maybe they only had the... It sounds like a... a, No matter how you explain it, it, it's very bizarre that it's not inside the parasha, okay? So, no doubt, some have suggested, I I say this off the top of my head, I'm sure it's true, that what they didn't, they didn't know anything about sitting in the sukkah. They knew about sukkahs, they knew it was a seven-day festival, a holy festival, that they knew but that you collect these woods and build a sukkah and sit in the sukkah, this they didn't know. In any event, but our, tra- our, our, our tradition understands the verse differently. Our tradition understands the verse to mean that they are two distinct things, taking these species, the Don and in addition, a mitzvah to sit in the sukkah. Could you repeat that? I didn't, I didn't quite grasp what you were
1: saying. What I'm that. saying
0: is, I'm, what I'm simply pointing out is, we have we have a let's put it this way we have a tradition to observe Sukkot a certain way okay the tradition is connected in one form or another either to the Pshat of the P'sukim or maybe it's not connected to the Pshat of the that's not connected to the of the psukim, but it's really connected to the P'sukim because the P'sukim speak both of taking these species and also speak of sitting in the Sukkot and my point is to, just one second I'll take a second my point is that when the, what the Karaites were saying was, when you open up the book of Nehemiah and you read it, it becomes clear that these various species, it doesn't sound like the species are there to be picked up and waved around during the Davidic, or before Davidic. It sounds like the species are there to make your sukkah. Because in Nehemiah, go out to the mountains, gather these woods, and make a sukkah. That was the first point. Then I added something else, which is not from the Karaites which is that a good Bible critic would probably say the following. What do you mean they didn't know you sit in the sukkah? How's that possible? Doesn't it say in the Torah you sit in the sukkah? A good Bible critic would say no, not in their Torah. Their Torah only had the first part of the parasha. Their Torah had the list of all the holidays, which ends with, these are the festivals of God. At some later point, no doubt, they would argue, I'm not saying I believe this, but that's what you could say. At some later point, there's an additional tradition, additional thing that's put in afterwards, that so goes the argument, that these people didn't know anything about. They have the Chumash. But they didn't, the argument would go, they didn't have this part of it. They only had up to Elam, or Hashem. The addition they didn't have in this Torah, whatever they're reading, it represents a different tradition. that you do have it. Ah, we never heard of this tradition. Whatever. I'm saying that's how one could read it. I actually personally don't like that approach in general, but that's what one could say. What do you want to say? It
1: just occurred to me that there are two aspects of Sukkot. One is to the Rosh and That's why they're together. And then you go back to Sukkot, it was part of the Shlosh going. Because in the same way, you see, we well, put Rosh Hashanah and together and Sukkot together.
0: But what you're saying is very important, actually.
1: That's why probably the discourse is Rosh and Gippur and
0: the unit between them. Right, well the... Uh, right, what you're saying is independently of an excellent point, and it's certainly a true point, that Sukkot functions in two different ways. Sukkot is functioning, and then we spoke about this two weeks ago, whatever, Sukkot is functioning as part of the triad of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur Sukkot, which means the festivals of the uh, of these of the of the, of the Seventh month. Rashi Shoda introduces them, and this Yom Kippur that to <coughs> We also, in the Chumash, of course, have the so-called Shalosh Megalim. They appear in more than one place. They appear in Sefer They appear in uh, in, uh, in in in, uh, oh, okay. in not, but they appear in Sefer Shemot. Actually, they appear in, in Shemot. They appear in Pesach with the other holidays. But I'm saying it's three Megalim as a distinct unit of Pesach of also called that you go yellow Yom. That appears in, Mish- in Shemot, I think twice, in Mishpatim and in Kiti, So it also appears in Pasha's Rei. In Sefer Devarim, by the way, there is no mention of Rosh Hashanah and of, and, of, and of Yom Kippur at all. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are not mentioned at all. But Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot are mentioned. Your point is a very important point. Sukkot is both the completion of the, of the triple Shalosh Regalim, which dealt with Pesach, but Shuk- Sukkot is also part of this triple of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Yom Kippur, and and uh, and uh, and Sukkot. I actually want to talk about that a little bit. What do you want to say?
1: Uh, well, in support of that uh, unnamed Bible critic this was Sari from spin, Perhaps uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was speaking specifically to those people in that generation. And why does Hashem brackets apply to them? Notice. Uh, note, I should say, how Zichron Shrua is is the reference to Rosh Hashanah in Leviticus uh, in the chapter we just have a reference to. Yeah. The year of the Exodus, according to tradition, the Exodus took place Shabbat Shabbat was on the tenth of Nisan, That was the Sabbath, the Saturday, so the Exodus took place on Thursday morning. Uh, if they would have uh, the cycle of months as we do. That first Rosh Hashanah, that first day of Rosh Hashanah, and the first day of Sukkot actually were also on Saturdays.
0: And also, the yeah. people
1: in the desert, according to to one Talmudic uh, approach, uh, sat in Sukkot all year. They had a Sukkot, or maybe they had they not had they had the, uh, the uh, Clouds of Glory. They, the, uh, Cloud of Glory they, may have, they may have had Sukkot. So this what's what's outside the bracket didn't apply to them. They did not blow Shofar as Yurashami says in that one opinion in the fourth beginning of the Rosh Hashanah, because it was Rosh Hashanah, only in the Mishra would they have blown. So the, the, the people of the children of Israel didn't blow Rosh Hashanah on that on that Rosh Hashanah. Therefore Zichron their is here. Supported by well, let's put it this way, okay? Right, that's what I was saying. It's a pshetical. Yeah. It's a pshetical, nice but it's a pshetical. Uh, it's, it's,
0: it's a pshetical, but it's making all kinds of assumptions which are not in the text at all. So, therefore, I, I got it as a pill-pull, but I mean, in terms of the humish, I don't see it. But the point, but coming back to the point that, that you made about how Sukkot functions in the calendar, that's what I wanted to, to discuss, actually. Now, here, you, you actually, Nisan alluded to something else, which is not the Gemara actually very important, and this is not a pshetho, that the Torah says about Sukkot, you are to sit in Sukkot for seven days, and it gives a reason. It says, Kibah Sukkot, In order that the generations know the generation should know that I allowed them, or caused Israel to sit in booths when I took them out of Egypt. So in that verse, they, I caused them to sit in booths. There's a disagreement in the Talmud, a very famous one. What are these booths? One opinion is the booths, like regular huts or whatever, that you sit in in the desert. And the, and the other... The strange thing is, learning, they, they built their own huts. Presumably, so the other opinion, "Hoshafti," I cause them to sit in booths, Doesn't mean actual booths. It's a reference, claims this Tanaitic opinion, to the clouds of glory that Israel accompanied Israel when they left the land of Egypt. Now, you have these two opinions. You have to ask yourself, which, in for learning the which of these two opinions seems more likely in the verse? "Basukot Hoshafti," your clouds of glory. But Basukot HaShavti are booths, actual booths. So I would say the following. If you read this verse alone, it sounds like they're actual booths. Basukot HaShavti doesn't sound necessarily to be clouds of glory, but the clouds of glory approach has a lot to support it in general. And I think that opinion is picking up on something which is in the Torah in a very deep way and teaches us a lot about the holiday of Sukkot. And that is. What, what, what do you mean, clouds of glory? What do you mean that God accompanied us with clouds of glory when we left the land of Egypt? That is referring, without question, to the fact that when we left... How does God accompany us when we leave Egypt? Not at that very moment, but ultimately in the desert, how is God accompanying Israel? God is accompanying Israel by, 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 by living with us in the, in the midst of Israel, and that is the Mishkan. So, what, the, if it, what this interpretation is suggesting by Sukkot O'Shafti is that what Sukkot represents for this opinion is the idea of the Mishkan. I took them out of Egypt, but I took them out of Egypt, and the, the goal, at least in the book of Shemot, the goal is to accompany them. The book of Exodus ends with the, with the building of the Mishkan. And what's interesting about the Mishkan is that the word sukkah actually appears in conjunction with the mishkan and in, in, in two different ways. The main way it appears with the mishkan, and the, of course the Gemara picks this up, obviously, the, 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 the sukkah or the word schach or socheich, which is the key to the sukkah, there is something in the mishkan which, are, which are, or things in the mishkan which are socheich. And what is socheich in the mishkan are the wings of the kruvim, the wings of the kruvim that cover the ark, right? So el ha kaporet The ark, which is the critical vessel of the mishkan, has above it has a cover, and above the cover, these two angelic beings facing each other with wings that cover the mishkan. In fact, the Talmud in Masechet Sukkah picks this up in a very deep way when the Talmud asks the question. What is the smallest sukkah you can sit in? That is, the the lowest. What is the minimum height of the sukkah? The Gemara says it's ten ten sfakhim. And the Gemara tries to prove it. And what's interesting (coughs) is they set out trying to prove it from how high were the wings of these these angels. They spent a fair amount of time wondering about the height of the wings of the angels, which from that you can infer that their their understanding of the the sukkah and the the mishkan, that there's something hovering above. And by hovering above, I I think that means, what what are these kruvim doing when they're hovering above the the, the ark, presumably? They are protecting it. The idea of the sukkah as a place of protection, which is very important, um, that the Talmud already connects to to the kruvim, that is sulkachim, and not just that, but I would add... My own two cents and say that just before we actually build a Mishkan, we know that after the golden calf, we were told that, I mean, we, we can't build a Mishkan because Moses breaks the tablets. So you can't build it. And Moshe starts to pray to God that God should allow him and the people to have a Mishkan that God should dwell amongst us. And finally, God gives in, God relents, and God reveals to Moshe the 13 attributes. You give them me And once Moshe is taught these attributes of mercy, God, they are useful, and God will agree to give Moshe a second set of luchot. It means you can build the Mishkan. That's how the book of Exodus ends. But when Moshe gets the 13 attributes, right? That's Yom Kippur. When he gets the, the idea of Yom Kippur, so God says to Moses, You stay here in the cleft of the rock. Why? Right? I will pass by the cleft of the rock. And what does God say to Moshe? I will place my hand over you. Right? It's a kind of protective mode. By the way, where in our prayers do we make reference to God putting God's hands over Moses as a kind of protection? To the Yom Kippur service, of course, where is it? It's the towards the end of Yom Kippur. It's the Srichos at the end of Yom Kippur in uh, in the Niwa. Yach Bienu tselyod. tachat kanfeya shina, right? It's the niwa srichos, it's the end. Are you saved? it, is it, is it? close. <laughs> That's what you do. <laughs> right? Ta's <anyway>, it's amazing. Yahviyanu <laughs> yodo. is interesting because the sukkah requires sale. But the word sale in biblical Hebrew has two meanings. One is shade, the other is protection. And by the way, in last week's parsha I noticed something in Parsha's Hazinu. Which is not only does the word sale have a double meaning of protection and also shade, but there's another word that has both meanings. You know what the word is? Sater. <laughs> Sater. <laughs> it says in Haziru, <laughs> right? Sitra. <laughs> Sitra. Sitra means protection. We say this in the in the in the in the, in the right? Seitekanafav we over we say right that the nipto should be Bseita Kanafov. Base kanaf is like seo yado, in other words, the protection. It's true of Yoshe Ketayat, but seoshaday to a Shadai Twanon, exactly. Yoshe Baseitir Oyon, but Seo Shadayitwanan. So the poet has both terms. It has a double meaning of hiddenness, but also of also of protection. So there it's the language of the Kumish is the sakotika, because what Moshe is really praying for is not just forgiveness, because God forgives. You know, okay, have a nice life. We don't want that. We want God to go with us, which means we want the Mishkan. So God says, "Okay, I will." In this, in this, <coughs> in this event where the two of us are together, says God, this will foreshadow, foreshadows the, the, the Mishkan, and and because I. You're here in a, in, a, in a place which is covered, which is hidden, and the hiddenness suggests God's protection. And later, I will, for the people, build a, also a, a kind of covering, a sukkah. And of course, the critical vessel of the Mishkan, so it has the sukkah, it has the schach, it has the kruvib, that is So the idea that the sukkah is connected to the Mishkan is actually not at all strange and here we come to your point which is a very good point about the relationship of Sukkot to the other holidays because the point is if you could think of it this way that the if you think about the cycle of the holidays which us say they begin with the Exodus they begin with Pesach and then the cycle starts with Pesach and then the first half let's say of the book of Exodus is about leaving Egypt that's Pesach But the second half of the book of Exodus isn't so much about leaving Egypt, we leave Egypt. It's, I would say, a spiritual exodus. You have to leave Egypt behind. With the golden calf, it is a demonstration. We didn't exactly leave Mitzrayim behind. Then you have to make the spiritual exodus, and that takes you to Yom Kippur. And then after Yom Kippur, you can finish the year, which is is the sukkah, which is the Mishkan, which is how the book of Exodus ends. The book of Exodus starts with Passover, starts with the Exodus, and it's finished with, with the Mishkan, so that the, the the Hebrew calendar is reflecting our 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 experience as a as as a people. So it makes perfect sense, actually, that that Sukkot and the Mishkan would be deeply connected, which of course they are. And we have other evidence that they're connected apart from the fact the very word Sukkot itself is a is a Mishkan word, and that Yom Kippur, of course. It, Yom Kippur comes just before Sukkot, so that's exactly our story. You give me dough young Yom Kippur, and after you pass the Yom Kippur, then we can have the Sukkot, which is right afterwards, so we can build the Mishkan. What's interesting is, in conjunction with the Mishkan, in conjunction with the Mishkan, there are other interesting features of Sukkot, unique to Sukkot, or primary to Sukkot. So, Shon, that's, he did do that. That's right, and the, the, yeah. the, that's true. There probably is a connection over there between you meet know, up between the Shmini and all that, and the and the building of the temple. Okay. That's true.
1: <laughs>
0: Not saying Tachanun when. Okay, fine. That's true. So you could see that as part of a. That might be that. It might be that. that okay, possible. That's possible. But it's, but there's something more fundamental, something more basic about it. You have to understand the basics. There's something else about Sukkot that's very interesting. First of all, there's something that we identify. We identify it with, with, with all the mitzvot, but the truth of the matter is, it's particularly connected to the holiday of Sukkot. And that is, taking these four species, the Arba Minim, the first of which is very unclear. Ul uh, it says, you shall take for yourselves is shown on the first day or by the first day creates Hadar creates Hadar. What is creates Hadar? So the tradition, the answer is no we don't know what it means. The Rambam writes that we have a tradition that it's a uh, it's a etrog. Okay, so fine. But the Torah did say etrog. The Torah said creates Hadar. And what it strikes me that whether you you can accept the tradition of the etrog, but the Torah calls it creates hadar, and that means that there's something specific about the holiday of Sukkot, which is hadar. That was the idea of the beautification of the mitzvah, is a, primarily a Sukkah halacha, which then becomes uh, expanded, one to say, to many other areas of Jewish practice, but is primary in the holiday of, 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 of Sukkot. And let me say two things about this. First of all, that it strikes me that actually, because on Sukkot, it's not just have a beautiful rule and a beautiful etrog, but it actually manifests itself in another very interesting way on the holiday of Sukkot. A different concept. Known in the harach as Noi Sukkot. Now, there's a mitzvah actually to beautify the Sukkot itself. Which suggests to me, Noi Sukkot, right? Suggests to me that the rabbinic tradition actually accepted what the Karaites were saying. Because according to the Karaites, yeah. the harder is actually the Sukkah. Because after all, these things are not a separate mitzvah for them. They are, you take these beautiful things to build your Sukkah. So the rabbinic tradition, while rejecting this, this view, also accepted it. In other words, they accept that on one level in the shot of the Pasuk, it is what the Pasuk is saying. Now what's interesting is, and this is all these things, of course, have enormous significance for, for many reasons. But as a small aside, I mean, many people have spoken, written about this. Everybody knows that it says in the Book of Maccabees that the year of Hanukkah, the people could not celebrate Sukkot. So Hanukkah was a Sukkot that had been the 25th uh, day of day of, uh, of Kislev. And the truth of the matter is that whether it means they actually physically couldn't do Sukkot that year or not, there are deep connections between Sukkot and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Hanukkah. Of course. And one of the, what the most interesting thing about the... There's this, this, this more than one connection, actually, but what distinguishes Hanukkah from all the other holidays that we have is that on Hanukkah, not only is there a mitzvah called Hidur Mitzvah, but we even have... Mahadrin Mina Mahadrin, and then the point is that the hidr of Chanukah because the, the Talmud says the mitzvah of Chanukah is one candle for for a house. The Mahadrin Nailko echad vi The Mahadrin Mina Mahadrin Poches Israweh Mahobas be shown it, it doesn't make a difference. The point is there are three categories. There's the mitzvah, this hijor, and there's mahadrin midha, really mahadrin. And the point is that in the case of Chanukah, it's not just that you have beautiful oil. The Mahajran, Midah Mahajran, do a different mitzvah. They're lighting more candles. So it's not just about doing the same mitzvah in a more beautiful way. It actually changes the very nature of, of the mitzvah. Mm-hmm. Where do we have this divhidra mitzvah? Creates Hadar. So Hanukkah and, and, of course, and Sukkot are connected in that way. And they're connected in another basic way also. The most basic way, which is what? The descending order hard yes, the same thing is, about my B'Shamma's opinion, is true. Beit Shammai says that on Chanukah you light on the first day eight candles, the next day seven candles, the next day six, then you go, Polchei Svaholech. Polchei Svaholech. Yes, I'll get to howl. I, 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 I had howl in mind, but I will just pick up first with Suri's point. So Beit Shammai, I'll get to howl. That, that was, that's what I meant. But, what's that? First Suri's point. So Beit Shammai has the opinion probably strikes everybody as a very strange opinion. That on Hanukkah, B'Shilo says, Every day you light more, you you light more candles. B'Shamay says the opposite. B'Shamay says, Every day you light fewer candles. Okay. Probably intuitively, your gut reaction to that is, What a strange thing to do. Every day to do less, it's strange. I'll get back to B'Shamay in a second. B'Shamay, of course, the two opinions, makes perfect sense. B'Shamay makes no sense. But B'Shamay makes perfect sense. Anyway, but, but, but doesn't matter. I'll get, I'll get to Beis in a second. The point is that the point is that. So Beis says, why do you why do we light fewer candles every day? So they give a reason. Well, it's not a reason; it has justification because we have another area of halacha where you do less every day. And what is that? Sukkot. See, because on Sukkot. The number of parim that you bring in the Musaf diminishes each day. The first day it's 13, then 12, 11, till you get down to 7. Shmini Yatseris only been one. Shmini Yatseris is, in a way, its own holiday. But the other days it's in descending order. It says, Beishamai, so on Sukkot you bring fewer, one less par each day, so the candles of Hanukkah should be the same. We see that Beishamai already is drawing a connection between the observance of Sukkot, and the observance of of Chanukah. Now you mentioned what I had in mind, which is Haral. On Sukkot, you say Haral every single day. I mean full Haral. Now by Pesach. Pesach you say full Haral one day, and the other days you say what's called half Haral or partial Haral, which means you don't say it. Because half Haral, it's a custom to say it, but it's not really Haral. So Pesach you say one. But on Sukkot, you say Haral every single day. The Talmud discusses that. I'll take it into that now. The other day when we say halal, every day, of course, is, uh, is uh, Chanukah. On Chanukah, which is a rabbinic holiday, we are saying the whole hallow every single day of Chanukah for, for eight days, which makes perfect sense if you see Chanukah as a kind of Sukkot. And by the way, I would add another Mishkan feature to both of them, about Chanukah and Sukkot. They're both eight days. Eight is a temple number. For example, the dedication of the temple. When did that happen? Vayi bayom hashmini, shmini The seven days of preparation for the seven days in miluim. Then you have the eighth day, which the temple is dedicated. Chanukah means the dedication. Chinuch is the dedication. Chanukah is the So it's eight days. Sukkot, being a, a, a mishkan holiday, is also eight days. Now let me just get back to Suri's comment about I just want to make a small point. I will quote my esteemed wife on this, Suggest this, this a total shot, of course. Simple. Why in the world would anybody diminish? Strange thing to do. What you diminishing? The first day, you like eight. Oh, tomorrow? Only seven. Six. You get down to the last days, only one. What? What kind of seichur? What kind of sense does that make? You must be very depressed. Beshameh, these depressed, negative people. You know, they oh, loves the world. Beshameh. Anyway, I like the Shammah here, that's can't tell you. <laughs> but uh, it's like this. It's very simple. <laughs> it's made the measure The Gemara picked up on something very important about Chanukah. Chanukah is actually the darkest time of the year. Because Chanukah actually, and as Yo Ben-Nun points out, Rosh Chodesh Chanukah is truly the darkest day of the year. Because not only is it the shortest day of the year, or just about the shortest day, but also there is no the moon either. So it's really dark. And then, of course, in the middle of Chanukah, what happens? It starts getting lighter. That's the famous Medrash, that Arama Marishon he saw the days were getting shorter and shorter, and he said, give out, maybe the world's coming to an end. And then, it started. he realized you know, the days are getting longer. This hope. So the point of Beit Shammai, of course, is a very simple point. Because as Chanukah proceeds, says Beit Shammai, you need light. That's small Because it, it represents the fact that as we travel through Chanukah, there's hope. Because you realize, first, the first part of Chanukah, you say, oh, things are getting worse, getting worse. And then it's in the middle of Chanukah, Rosh Chodesh is the turning point, suddenly it starts getting wider. So Be'er Shammai says, what is the Chanukah, festival of hope? Because you realize things, even though it's a very, very low point, it starts to get better means you need less light, you need less of our own energy put in because there's more hope, help from the outside. It's Peshama's opinion of Pokhites Vaholech. Mm-hmm. See, it all makes perfect sense. But it's shot actually, Peshama. So yes? Mean, in terms of Peshama potential versus actuality, it was seven days left, six days
1: left, five days left, how much oil is left
0: in the rest of the tonic? Alright, that's also a way. I mean, the point is, I'm trying to, to give an explanation doesn't contradict kind of what you're saying, but I'm trying to give an explanation which picks up on something very interesting about the holiday of Chanukah, which is, it's the holiday right smack at the darkest time. It's a holiday in which the day itself, which is that over the course of these days, and being the turning point, of course, it's a funny holiday. It's a holiday which is the two different months. I mean, it's a very interesting holiday Chanukah. but that's not our problem here. Our point is to Sukkot, and Sukkot has various features. Let me get to the one point I wanted to make I didn't make it clear. The idea of Hidur Mitzvah, this is the point I want to make, the, basically the idea of Hidur, of beautification, at its core, is a temple concept. That's the point I want to make. That's where you have Hidur. In the temple you have Hidur. First of all, there's a tremendous emphasis in the Torah that the things of the temple should be beautiful. For example, the big day kahuna. There we have exactly the term. The Asitur uh Again, yeah, what's the first part of the Passover? Big day, big day, Kodesh, we are all now. Mechavodu, Tiferet. Kavodu, Tiferet. For honor, and Tiferet, which is pear, which is beauty. The very terms that we have in the beginning of Medieval Esther is also Kavodu, Tiferet. It's Achashverosh. It's about himself, his palaces, his parties. But in the temple, the word Kavodu, Tiferet appears in the Torah at least twice in conjunction with the Mishkan. And not just that. There's something else. It's not just beauty in terms of the clothing. The vessels are very, the, of made of beautiful things. Actually, it's something very almost other, otherworldly about the temple. That's very idea. It's very unreal in a certain sense. It's very beautiful. King Solomon went maybe too far with it, but it's, it's something about the beauty of it, and not just the beauty of it in terms of the way it's constructed but also the kinds of things that we find in the temple. For example, not just the artwork of the temple, but also the song of the temple. The temple is a place which, in which human uh, creativity, in terms of the arts, the aesthetic, and we have, associated with the temple, we have song. We have the William singing, the young big emphasis. But we also have musical instruments in the temple. So the idea of the, a place where we have in Simchat Beit HaShoeva, which is a temple celebration of Sukkot, we have dancing as well. So this song and this dance and this art, it's a, the outpouring of human creativity all dedicated to the temple. That's something very central. There, Heder Mitzvah makes perfect sense. And that's, since Sukkot is a Mishkan uh, holiday, so it says the Torah, the Pshat is, take either take as a separate mitzvah or take in conjunction with the sukkah, what it should be is to be beautiful, pre sadar. So our tradition is that there are two different mitzvot, which I'll get to in a second. But even without that, there's also the other idea that the Karaites put forth, which I think our tradition has partially accepted, that these things are used to build the sukkah. If that's true, the sukkah's got to be beautiful, which is why we have on sukkah the concept called Noi sukkah. The noise sukkah, the decorations of the sukkah, actually, this is a halachic point, they become part of the sukkah. The sukkah during the days of Sukkot is forbidden to get a benefit from. It's called with mitzvah to. It's mukzah, in a sense, it's set apart for the mitzvah. The what about, yeah, what about, what about the decorations? They're also forbidden to Because that's the sukkah. They noise sukkah because it's part of the sukkah, actually. So that's the idea of Hita. So that's one aspect of Sukkot. Now, there's another aspect of Sukkot. Our tradition, and I think our tradition is, don't get me wrong, I think can, it, it reads very well in the text. The truth of the matter is, without the book of Nehemiah, if you just read the Pesukim in Vayikra, it does sound to me like there are two different mitzvot. But, what is this idea of taking these species? Creates Hadar, Anaf Arve what is the idea of the Dawud meaning? So I... I you want to say something? Maybe you the to
1: connected with Dira. Ador, Ador. If you ask That's the Gemara.
0: be... I don't think that's the Pshat. No, but you
1: find to say that the Sukkot is a Dira, I
0: understand that, but I'm saying I don't think in the, the word yeah. Dar in the, in the in the Chumash... But what is the Sukkot about, actually? I mean, what, let's say in terms of our observance of Sukkot. So we have this dwelling in these booths, which is a mishkan, the beautiful structures, but there's also the Dalen medium. Sukkot is identified in our tradition exactly. with something else, with well, agricultural, but particularly something else, which has to do with the, the, the way it's situated in on, on, on terms of the calendar. Sukkot is, is a festival. <coughs> it is the end of the agricultural cycle. It's the harvest of the Asif, but it's also something else. It is situated at the time that the rains begin to fall. So deeply connected to Sukkot, deeply, deeply connected to Sukkot, is the holiday in which, yes, we are completing, in a sense, the previous agricultural year, but it's also something else, which is we are, in fact, anticipating, hoping for a good next year, which is going to depend on one thing. It all depends on the rain. And therefore, there's no doubt that the, the, the taking of the four species, Arvinahal, and waving them, and probably beating them, in terms of the Hoshannas, which is also very interesting. I can't get into that now. It's very interesting, the Hoshanis. I think yesterday I gave a shi'o. We read through the Hoshara we say, on, on Hoshanna Raba, and tried to explain the themes of Hoshanna which is amazing, actually. So don't have time for everything. But there's something else about Sukkot, which is, we are anticipating the rain. And actually, we are not just anticipating the rain, but on Sukkot, we are uh, actually praying for rain. Except we don't want to pray for rain on the first day of Sukkot, because then we can't sit in that sukkah. So therefore, we delay till the last day. Shemini Atzeret. But really, of course, we would begin to pray for rain in the beginning of Sukkot. And we wait till Hoshana, we wait till Shmini um, Yatzeret to pray for rain. But the waving of the Lula, of the waving and the taking of these species, is already a ready suggestion that we are hoping for, uh, for the rains for the, for the next year. And uh, something else very interesting about rain, which is in terms of what we do, we are doing two different things in our prayers we are mentioning the rain, we mentioned the rain, that's in Shemini but we also, not on Sukkot itself, but later in the year, we begin to ask for rain. The question is, when do you start asking for the rain? You don't ask for the rain on Sukkot, you ask later on. So this question of when you begin to ask for rain is a very, very interesting question, actually. The Talmud says that in in the land of Israel they started at one time and in Babel they started at a different time. And if you want to study I think a very interesting topic one wants to study the history of uh, of, uh, of Halakha and the problems attendant upon Halakha from a I would say from how people actually relate to Halakha which requires you know a study of, among other things of I mean so you bring a good psychologist in, it would be very helpful, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because what you realize when you study this of when do you ask for rain, okay, you realize the degree to which people refuse to change their practice, even when it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Not only makes no sense, I mean it's nonsense. And when you try to stop it and, and fight against it, uh, you don't usually win. So when, when it comes to the rain... The obvious point is that the Talmud says that in in the land of Israel, actually, they ask for rain. You know when they ask for rain in Israel? They ask for rain basically at a time when they're sure that the people who went up to Sukkot, to the temple, can get home before it starts raining. We don't want it to rain when they're on the roads. Right? That's what the Kohen Galdo prays for on Yom Kippur. Don't bring the rain. We want rain this year, but now when people were traveling, that, right? that's the famous story in the Talmud of Hanidah Bendoza. Hanidah Bendoza was a magical man. He's amazing. He's a, when he would have, people, when it wasn't raining, they would go to Hanidah Bendoza. So, uh, he, could, he could always bring the rain. He was beyond this world. One time he was walking and he said, maybe he was, forget, he said he was thirsty while he was hot. He says, "Start to rain. Someone commented about Hanidah says." What does the Cohen God on Yom Kippur help us with? it's Channita Bendosa. You know, he, he wants the rain. It's going to rain. But leaving Channita Bendosa out, the point of the Talmud is very simple. In the land of Israel, the rain is tied to Sukkot. Not just mentioning the rain, asking for rain as well. We don't want to ask. We want to actually get the rain when people are on the roads having celebrated Sukkot. So we wait for they safely home after Sukkot, was it Zayim Macheshven or whatever, and then the rains come. That's in the land of Israel. But other places have different kinds of seasons. So in Babel, they had a different... They waited after, after the Tukuf for a certain number of days. What happened... This is just a small aside. What happened... This is very nice for the land of Israel. What if you live in a place like France or Germany? When do you pray for rain? So the, the man, basically... Very interesting. Uh, Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu Asher, the Rosh... It was the great post-lake of of, of, of of France, of Ashkenaz, pupil of the Marani Rutenberg. One time it hadn't rained too much during the year, and it was, you know, was May, June, July, whatever. He said, let's pray for rain. How can we pray for rain? It's after Pesach. What is this? How can you do this? He says, what are you talking about? We need rain, you know? Anyway, so he, he, he couldn't convince. He did all kinds of stories about him. He actually leaves Europe, not, not for that reason. But he leaves Europe, he goes to Spain. And he's one of the most interesting... He's the great, great poster of Europe. Well, actually, he leaves and he goes to Spain. He's afraid he's going to be killed. So he goes to Spain. And as he's going along to Spain, he's stopping in these different towns, trying to convince them that our practice of only asking for rain during these seasons makes no sense. Because we don't live in a, in a climate where it rains part of the year and not. So... So uh, he does, he, at one time in the synagogue agrees with him. He it. This is the leading post of the entire Jewish people, you understand. It's not a little guy. And then when it comes to it the next day, they, they, they refuse to do it. The people in the shore refuse to do it. You get a sense of how ingrained these things are. To the degree nowadays we have another problem, which of course, I don't know if they knew about it. What if you live in the, other, in, the, in the southern hemisphere? So this is totally crazy because your summer, it's all reversed. So what do you do? This is the problem. I mean, logically you would say let's ask for rain when we actually need rain. But no, actually, as far as I hear, I was checking this out. They follow Israel basically, even though it makes no sense at any level. In any event, this is the holiday of Sukkot is the time. But but, rain rain now, Mashi Baruch and Moed Geshe is actually not technically a prayer for rain. Now it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a praise of God who brings the rain. Now it's true. And Rabbi Eliezer said to Rabbi Yeshua, if it's a praise of God, do it the whole year round. Why are we praising God? But we only praise God for rain at a time when we anticipate the rain. Maybe you're right. Maybe there is some sense where even Lashav Ruach is an indirect prayer. But it's certainly not a direct prayer. The direct prayer is later in Birkat in Hashanim where either you say the ten bracha or the ten talumatag In any event, the holiday, which is about the rain, is the holiday of, of, of Sukkot. There's no question that the arba medium are connected to the rain and there's no question that the bizarre, strange custom of taking, of of, of Hoshana Raba and of beating the Hoshanas on the ground has got to be some kind of fertility rite anticipating, hoping for the crops that will grow in the coming year, which is, of course, all depending on the rain. Without rain we have nothing. So I did want I wanted to, to try to frame these the two these are the two main aspects of the holiday of Sukkot. And of course the other main thing of Sukkot is the uh is the Havel. Is it what? Havel, the recitation of Havel. Now the truth is in my Haggadah I wrote about Havel and I it's my favorite thing in the whole Haggadah. And there actually it focuses on Pesach, but the truth is that it also talks about Sukkot. If I have time, I'll say two words about that. But let me get, I, want to, I want to frame this a different way in terms of these two. Simchas Beis but Yes, because Of course, you see the two. That's an excellent point. You see the two things coming. I want to frame these two. These two. These two things. And I would frame it in the following way: these two different aspects. of On one hand, Sukkah is the Mishkan, the Temple. On the other hand. There is this hope for prayer for reign, and you're very correct. Simchas beis and something else about Sukkot, another big fight of the of the tzadukim and the prushim. Yes, the rabbis came up with a new interpretation, which not in the chumash, obviously. The rabbis came up with a new mitzvah. The tzadukim didn't buy it in any manner, shape, or form, and for very good reason. But they didn't, it doesn't matter. But it's the rabbinic tradition. We know that in the Torah, when you bring a sacrifice very often, it's accompanied by other things called the mincha, which is flour, which is, and which is uh, oil, and which Ay- is, oh, yeah, yeah. The li- wine libation, you pour wine. It's always the pouring of wine. But the rabbis came up with a new thing, that on the holiday of Sukkot, there's a different libation, an additional libation. Niso chamayim. Niso the pouring of water. Sadducees said, oh, this is, this is nuts. Where do you get this from? The answer is, out of nowhere. But the idea <laughs> of it is, not the answer, you know, kinds of drunk, but very important. And as you see from that clearly, the degree to which Mayim and Sukkot are bound to get, it's the time that you pray for rain. Now, let me just, I want just to frame briefly these two elements of what Sukkot is. is. They came yeah, of the they of the Israel, of course. They, they didn't accept that. It doesn't make a difference. This is certainly what Sukkot has, has come to mean, no doubt. And I think for good reason. I do think it's rooted in the text. I don't mean Yisachamayim, but the idea of Mayim is good. Now, here's, here's what I wanted to suggest, a good way to frame this, which is the following. In, in general, I've come to believe that all paths take us back to Genesis. you got to start with Genesis. The story of Bresheet core story for us in Breshi course, God creates everything but the second story is that God creates a particular place a sacred place it's called the Garden of Eden and in this place God places God's creation the human being then it becomes two human beings who want to dwell in the Garden of Eden in the Garden of Eden the Torah says a very strange thing at the very beginning it says prior to the creation of the humans it's via yahu emina arets Mishka, God planted a garden and an aid would have rose up from the earth what is an aid so the commentaries are divided not just the commentaries people are divided what is the aid some think it means a mist some think it means a, 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 a spring a spring of water and the Torah says it was watered by this aid Kilo him Hashem because God had not brought the rains yet on earth and there was no human to work the earth so Kasuto says on the spot very deep thing he says that the word Matar actually is connected to the human being because so what is Matar? Matar is, things, matar is rain precipitation but it's not just rain Matar is things that God brings down from heaven and when you look at the Chumash, you will see that the word Matar appears in several contexts. It appears first with that chapter 2 of Genesis. It appears next with the Mabel, with the flood. Vayam God brought down the flood. Right? That's what it says. It appears in the story of Sodom in chapter 19 of Genesis. God was Himtir Gophrit Vaish, right? God brought down the sulfurous and the fire, himtir, himtir asadon Mara. it appears importantly in the seventh plague of Barad, God is Mamtir over there, it's very important, seventh plague is the plague, the longest plague in all the ten plagues, and the Barad that comes down is not just Barad, hail, but has fire inside it, God is Mamtir, and it appears, importantly, in conjunction with the, uh, with the mon. The mon. The mon. And why? Why is God raining down the mon from heaven? Says the Torah. To test them if they follow my Torah or not. In short, the idea of matar, the idea of rain, whether it's, whatever the rain is, is a God's response either. God's response to human behavior. And especially interesting about Mitzrayim and about Sodom is that in each case, they've been warned. They're warned, actually. Or they're given an opportunity to do the right thing. God sends these messages to Sodom to see what's going to happen. they they fall the test. But Mitzrayim, Pharaoh was warned many times. The man says the Torah is a, is a, God is going to test gone. us. God will test us and see if we follow God's Torah or not. Matar is God's response in the Torah to human behavior. This is, as we say in the Shema, if you keep the Torah, there's going to be rain. If you don't keep the Torah, there's not going to be rain. The rain is a response to human behavior. Now, the Garden of Eden is a place where after we eat of the fruit of the garden, we are banished from the Garden of Eden. And once we're banished from the Garden of Eden, and we set out to wander across the earth, and eventually to create or to discover a kind of alternate Eden, then what's interesting is, for example, with the story of Sodom. right? The Torah says this, that when Abraham and Lot separate, in the 13th chapter of Breshit, it says, Abraham said to Lot, Do you want to go to the right? I'll go to the left. You want to go to the left? I'll go to the right. Left and right means north and south. You go to the north. It says, Lot picked up his eyes. And what did he see? He actually looked eastward. He picked up his eyes and he saw a very fertile place Sodom. And the Torah then describes Sodom. In a very striking passage. The Torah describes Sodom as being the following Kigan Hashem, Kieretz Mitzrayim, Zohar. Sodom was followed, says the Torah, like the Garden of God, like the land of Egypt. So right away it jumps out at you, Gan Hashem can only refer to one thing in Genesis, the Garden of Eden. The, why is the Torah comparing the Garden of Eden forget Sodom, to Mitzrayim, to Hashem, what happened to the Garden of Eden? Like the land of Egypt? What is that? But the point is actually a very, very simple point in the Chumash. The point is that when we're initially in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was not a place primarily where people are there to to make choices. There weren't too many choices to make. There was one choice. Okay, we made a bad choice. There was one prohibition. Outside of that, there are no prohibitions. It's very simple. It's all given to us. It is called, it's called Garden Eden, Garden of Pleasures. I mean, so Eden, right? It's not, it's not a place where you struggle. The struggling only takes place after you leave the Garden of Eden. But in partaking of that fruit, something changes. What, what changes is that the world in which we find ourselves, which is our world, which is set up by the expulsion from Eden. The world in which we find ourselves is a world in which it's all about making choices. And God, God will respond to us the way we make choices. The place for the Chumish that represents a place of choice is the land of Canaan, the land that God seeks out, Dorei for the simple reason that in the land of Canaan, in the Chumish, there isn't always water. You can't survive there. You always survive in the land of Canaan, if God gives you rain, and God's going to give you rain, in the words of the book of Devarim, or in the words of the Shema, if you keep the mitzvot, you get rain. you don't keep the mitzvah, you don't get rain. Some Jews don't like to say that, parsha. you know what I mean? That's a big mistake on their part. Because the idea is very basic. The idea of you live in a place of choice, and there are consequences to one's actions. Okay, you don't like the rain business, or whatever. You want to find a different parasha? Doesn't but, matter. But the point is, that's what it's saying. And once you live in that kind of world, what is what is Mitzrayim? Mitzrayim is the place where there's always water. That's the whole point of Egypt. There's always water, the Nile. Okay, there can be the extreme case of famine, like the story of Joseph. But fundamentally, there's a reason you go down to Egypt when there's a famine, because in Mitzrayim it doesn't depend on God giving you the rain. In short, in Mitzrayim is the place where well, you don't necessarily pay the price of your, of, of your behavior, where well, your action doesn't necessarily have, have consequences. So after we partake of the fruit, then, then Gana Gan Hashem becomes Eretz Mitzrayim, because that's not the world in which we, we want to live in anymore. We should be living anymore. That's not our world. Our world is a world of action, of God's response. That's the whole point. And you only merit the land of Canaan if you behave a certain way. If you don't behave a certain way, says the Torah, I'm going to throw you out. Just as like I threw out the Canaanites, I'll throw you out as well. So what's interesting, what I think is, is we... Now, let me, I want to frame it this way. Let's, let's get back to, to Genesis. We are, there is this Garden of Eden, which is a sacred place. It's God's holy space. And then what happens? And then we are banished from Eden. That's the second creation story. The first creation story was about God creating everything. So that, that the world is destroyed, or the world is uncreated, right? And the Garden of Eden is, is, is we're banished from that in any event, even before the destruction. And now in the Book of Greshit, keep coming back to this point, it's so basic, there's a flood, there's a destruction. And now we have to, have, now we have to recreate the world. So the world is recreated in, in two stages. The first stage is to recreate the whole world. Shemayim and Eretz in all Genesis chapter 1. And the human being who does that, of course, is, uh, is a Noah. Because God does recreate the world. God stops the flood. God orders Noah out of the ark. God commands Noah to populate the world. God gives Noah some basic rules of human behavior, which hark back to Genesis chapter 1. God's rationale is, B'Tselem Elohim which is the one of the signature phrases in Genesis chapter 1. Okay. The human being is endowed and created in God's spirit, image, or whatever, and the world should be recreated. That's Noah. But what Noah never does is to recreate Genesis' second creation story, which is sacred space. He doesn't find the sacred space. The sacred space is to be found, not by Noah, but by his successor ten generations later, and that's Abraham. And he recreates it in, in, actually in, in, in two stages. In the first stage, God commands him to go, el are areka, to go to the special land, it's the land of Canaan. Abraham enters the land of Canaan. Goes to Shechem, he enters the land of Canaan. That's the first Lecholcha. The second Lecholcha is, Abraham is commanded in chapter 22, the binding of Isaac. He's commanded to go to the place that I will tell you, Abraham goes there. He sees the place himself. He brings the sacrifice at that spot. He names the place, the place that God sees or God chooses. That is the place of the sacrifice. That's the place of the temple. That's the holy space within the space. That's the Mikdash. y'amir hayom bahar Hashem which today is known as the place in which God is seen. Yireh y'raeh. Yireh y'raeh, those two words. Yireh and Yireh are terms that appear in the Torah in conjunction, of course, with going up to the Temple, the place that God chooses. Shalosh p'amim ba'ashanah, Yireh, the and panei Hashem, right? And elsewhere, the... What? and you have it later on. And actually, in the Talmud, there's even a discussion whether the correct reading is Yireh or it's Yireh. It's very not clear, actually, in the Chumash. But in any event the era, you appear before the God, you are seen before God, God is seen there. That's the temple. So it strikes me the following. It strikes me, and what is that all about, actually? If you think about it, what is this idea of the, of the temple and the, and the land? The temple and the land are, for the book of Genesis, the replacement for the Garden of Eden. The, God's purpose in the world is not just to create a whole world, but there was a special place in this world. The special place initially is the Gan eden. But Gan eden is the place from which you are banished, you can never get back there. So you're not going to get back to Eden. Not just to that physical place. You can't even get back to the idea of Eden either. You can get back to a sacred space. But you can't get back to the eden like place because you know, you know what were the innocent who could live in Aden. Gan Aden was, was for innocent people, children. But we're not innocent anymore, not after we eat of the fruit. As God says about Noah, we're not innocent at all. And therefore, the question is where is the Eden for the non-innocent person? Where is the Eden for the person who has drives, desires, and, above all, has knowledge, who has the ability to make choice? It can't be Egypt, because that's not a place of choice. It can't be Ganeda, and that's not a place of choice. It's the land of Canaan. So here's the point about Sukkot. Here's what I was thinking about Sukkot. That Sukkot has two dimensions to it. Sukkot is the culminating holiday of the Torah. I'm going to be very blunt about it. Whatever rabbinic tradition, whatever you think, in terms of the practice. I, I love Yom but it doesn't matter. In the Chumash, the holiday without question is, of course, Sukkot. I mean, Pesach is important. Pesach is the first one. Yes, Sukkot is the Chag. It's called Chag, actually. Sukkot is the culmination. Sukkot is the goal. The goal in the Torah is the Mishkan. That's the goal of Exodus. The Mishkan holiday is, is of course, Sukkot. What's interesting is, Sukkot has the other dimension. It's also the rain holiday. Those two things go together, actually, because that's exactly the point of our Mishkan. That's exactly the point of what makes our sacred space different. What makes our sacred space different, what makes the Mishkan different from Gan Eden, is that Eden was a place... There wasn't, it wasn't about choosing it wasn't about consequence there is a consequence of disobedience but it's not a place where the human being is told you are to make all the choices because the human being is denied knowledge we don't have the knowledge to make the choices once you get the knowledge then suddenly you get it, you have a different task in life and you have the ability to choose and you become responsible for all of your choices and I go beyond that which is that what's clear in the chumash for example, and my wife has written about this and of course we talk about it all the time, but what is particularly striking in the Chumash is that the, the second story, the story after Gan Eden, the story of Cain and Abel, it's very striking. So Cain, of course, we know the story. Cain brings a sacrifice, God doesn't accept it. His brother brings a sacrifice of the best. God does accept it. And Cain is very unhappy, to put it mildly so what does God say to Kaiba? he says what are you so upset about? Haloim teitiv right? says, if you do good it, whatever it means you'll be raised up you'll be forgiven you'll be primary good things will happen to you if you do good if you go and if you don't do good sin crouches at the door only bad things will happen but the point is right so he's commanded to Adam was commanded what? What was Adam's command? Adam was commanded, and by extension Eve as well, you can eat all the trees you want. But the tree of tovarah you can't eat. So the, he was given, they were given, very specific commands. Don't eat that particular tree. When God speaks to no, God doesn't say to Kayin. God doesn't different to Kayin. If you do good, you're going to be okay. And if you don't do good, you're not going to be okay. But what God never says to Kairi is, what does it mean to do good? God, God, God presumes that he knows, actually. After all, you've eaten of, right? You, you have eaten, of the, you have eaten of, the, of, of the fruit of knowledge. Right? You ate the tree of knowledge. God, right? You know tovara, you know good from bad. If you know good from bad, says God, I don't have to explain to you what the good and bad are because I'm, I'm, I'm saying that you have the ability to figure it out for yourself because you know and of course then Cain goes out and kills his brother and God says to Cain where's your brother? what was Cain's first words? I don't know he says that was God's whole point you do. but yes you do know you can know okay you don't know but you should but you could I don't care if you know or you don't know but the ignorance is not a, you can't plead ignorance you have the ability to know that's the point the point is intuitive. I'm not going to tell you anymore you know what I mean some people have the mindset if it doesn't say that if, if, if it's that way that, that it's forbidden in the book then it's okay it's ever, but no that's not the point the book is a guide you know what I mean but, but at the end of the day the goal of the Torah is to create autonomous moral agents Abraham knows that the, the, the Ram is behind him how does he know it because he can figure it out. He knows it's got to be there. No one tells him. But, he, but he's capable of figuring it out. That's the point. So when you get out of Eden, we're out of Eden, then the point is very simple. We we can know good from bad. We, if we don't know, we can work to, to to know. We can try to figure it out as best we can. Of course, we're human, so we don't have perfect knowledge. But but well, we can learn a lot of things, we can understand. And therefore, because you can understand. As God said to Kayin, you are are a moral agent who is responsible. And in the Torah, the sign of God's response to our behavior is always Matar. So Sukkot actually is very interesting. Sukkot is both. Sukkot is the holiday of rain, which means the holiday of God's response. On the other hand, it's also the temple. But this temple is, is a replacement for Eden but it's not Eden. And I would conclude with the following observation about this, following this path. I like this path a lot. I think this is very, it has immense significance for many, many, many things. I'll tell you something else about the Jewish calendar. That I believe the Jewish calendar, as I said, everything takes us back to, to, to Genesis. Because Abraham was the one to, I would say, to, re, to rediscover or to recapture sacred space. But he does it in two stages. The first stage was the land of Canaan, the first Lech Lecha, right? There he's shown, actually. With Lech Lecha, with the, sacred, with the first sacred space, the first Lech Lecha, God actually shows him the space. The second place is not the whole land of Canaan, but a place within the place. And there, Abraham is much more of a, a say. First, Abraham actually names the place, you know, the Genesis act. Abraham names the place Hashem Yirah but apart from that the other Torah didn't say that God showed him the other Torah says the place that I will tell you but the verb to see is used in the Akedah specifically in conjunction with, with Abraham seeing and in two different ways first he sees the place from afar in the fourth verse of chapter 22 and the second is he sees the ram behind him out of his not in the line of vision and what I would suggest is this, that in the, in, the, in the calendar, which I think the idea of a calendar is to objectify, in a certain sense, the way one works, walks, and lives through, through the year. The calendar reflects in some way our own personal experiences through the year. The story of the exodus from Egypt, there are two goals when you leave, the, leave Egypt. One, the goal was the same, to be able to, discover a place where the individual and the community can be together with God in the same place. And it strikes me that Abraham had had two spaces. The first space was the land of Canaan, coming into this land, which is the place of choice, the place of human action and and, and consequence. And the second was, within this large space, to discover the sacred space, the holy space. Yes, Haram-Loriah, the Migdash, and all the different terms for the Mikdash and it strikes me that's exactly the calendar that we have not the Sukkot as part of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and then Sukkot but the Sukkot as far as Pesach Shavuot and Sukkot because in the Torah in any event I talk about the Torah now what does Shavuot represent in the Chumash what is the holiday of Shavuot in the Chumash you know what it is entering no it's called that terrace in the Gemara but it's entering the lands when you enter the land, the, the, the Chumash says the following, first you have Passover. Then the Torah doesn't mention Shavuot right away. Then it mentions the mitzvah of Sfirah to Omer. You're traveling. And when you come into the land and you bring those first fruits, what Shavuot represents in the Chumash is actually entering the land. What Sukkot represents in the Chumash is, is the holy space within the land. It's a temple holiday. It's exactly... What you have in Genesis, exactly, actually, to a T. This is our calendar. This is our calendar. Is that why the word luach calls the calendar
1: as well as calendar?
0: I have no idea about the, the I don't know what the term luach is. I mean, what's funny about this is, you know, it's so simple. You know what I mean? It took me a long time. I'm so I'm very excited about this formulation. I think there's deep truth to this. And it's telling not just a calendar on a wall. You know what I mean? suddenly because basically it's about a journey it's what it really is it's a journey through time it's a journey that we take everything's a journey you know the the temple the way the Torah eventually represents the temple the place that God has chosen and suddenly when it becomes the place that God has chosen which is what God says to Abraham at at the Akedah and once you have the place that God chooses it's not a mishkan that God is with us in the same place, but but you're traveling to God. Then suddenly the journey itself becomes very important. The Yakeda is not even so much about the binding of Isaac. It's those three days that he's walking there. You know, he, he actually Abraham. It's interesting in the Chumash. He actually chops the wood right away. He doesn't wait to get there. He chops the wood immediately. Some other time I'll talk to you about that. But then he chops the wood immediately. Then he has to walk for three days. It's the journey come suddenly the, the journey to, to the sacred place is very important. This is being there, but it's going there. The calendar, one might say, is a kind of journey. The goal is Sukkot, of course. But of course, the moment you get to Sukkot, there's the other dimension, which is the rain, which means you're starting over again. Every, every ending is also a beginning, and that is represented by us in our own practice. When we come to the holiday of Sukkot, we are completing the Torah, and then right away we start the next cycle. We don't wait, because it's never ending, of course, for the very simple reason. Because even though if you go through the same motions the second year, we hope they're not the same. They shouldn't be the same. That's our problem. It is the same. But it's not supposed to be the same. The routine is the enemy of everything. To repeat the same thing is the enemy. So you're starting it again. Our prayers are that next year will be different, actually. We'll make other mistakes, too. But we know that. but. Hopefully, there's some improvement over time in this journey that we take through the calendar. Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot—the place that God has chosen, the place that God chooses—but it's the place of the place of consequence, the place of human decision, and, and we pay the price or rewarded or suffer for our decisions. That's the place of rain. It's the Sukkot.